you should always be willing to accept the possibility that even your strongly held views are wrong. And so what I have to do is I have to hold on to a little bit of humility and a little bit of doubt. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we're joined by an interesting thought leader, all in the name of helping you unleash your leadership potential with their insights, tools, and habits. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, CEO of Results, where we believe there's a hard path and an easier path to building your business. We partner with your leadership team to show you how to dramatically improve your results by perfecting the art of execution to get more of what you want from your business. We disagree with people every day. Not only does it put strain on relationships, but it prevents us from learning. Today we're joined by Adam Grant, who will share his tips for rethinking and letting go of views that no longer serve us, so we can live richer lives and deepen our connection with others. Adam also gets personal with us, sharing his experiences with becoming a best-selling author and having over 4 million social media followers. This is an episode you're not gonna wanna miss. I wanna thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University, and they partner with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their online offerings include leadership, digital transformation, project management, artificial intelligence and ethics, digital wellness, and embracing allyship and inclusion. Their core belief is that learning should be fun, engaging, and easily accessible. Their online platform means your employees can literally learn from wherever they are located. PowerEd meets them in their space and at a time that works best for them. Check out PowerEd at powered.ca. Thank you to today's episode sponsor, Converge. The pace of digital change is not slowing down and companies that want to thrive in the future need to ensure business technology is part of their strategy. Converge is a gold Microsoft partner that understands this need and helps companies find their way forward by connecting their strategic business goals to their data and technology vision. For over 10 years, Converge has been partnering with clients across all industries and helping them integrate technologies that change how they work. Through solutions like custom applications, process automation, anywhere access, and real-time business dashboards, Converge is helping clients remain competitive. And what truly makes Converge different is how they help make digital transformation approachable. You can learn more by visiting their website at converge.com. And for those listening in, Converge is spelled with two Vs. And don't forget to help us grow the community by sharing the episode links with people in your network that love learning as much as you do. Check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. Now on with the episode. Now my very special guest today is Adam Grant. Adam is an organizational psychologist and best-selling author who helps people find meaning and motivation at work. Adam has been Wharton's top-rated professor for seven years. As an organizational psychologist, he's a leading expert on how we can find motivation and meaning and live more generous and creative lives. He's been recognized as one of the world's 10 most influential management thinkers and Fortune's 40 under 40. He's the number one New York Times best-selling author of five books that have sold millions of copies and been translated into 35 languages. Think again, Give and Take, Originals, Option B, and Power Moves. His books have been named among, this, uh, among the year's best by Amazon, Apple, the Financial Times, and the Wall Street Journal. His New York Times article on languishing 
is one of the most shared articles of 2021. Adam hosts Work Life, a chart-topping TED original podcast. His TED Talks on original thinkers and givers and takers have been viewed more than 30 million times. Let that sink in for a second. He received a standing ovation at TED in 2016 and was voted the audience's favorite speaker at the Nantucket Project. His speaking and consulting clients include Google, the NBA, Bridgewater, and the Gates Foundation. He's also been known to provide pro bono advice to Jeff Tetz. He has more than 5 million followers on social media and features new insights in his free monthly newsletter, Granted, and he joins us today. Adam Grant, welcome to Unleashed. Such an honor to be here, Jeff. Thank you for having me. I'm going to try to earn maybe two words of that bio over the course of this conversation. <laughs> oh, I'd say you've earned, you've earned it. Uh, you've earned it and then some. And that was the simple version. Like I tried to, uh, I tried to distill the essence of it. And that's, that's what I came up with. So it, pretty, uh, pretty impressive. So Canadian of you. Yeah, for sure. So uh, speaking of, of being Canadian and, and how polite we are, I, I will warn you, uh, organizational psychologists come here for hard-hitting journalism and tough questions. So I thought I would start off by asking, what was your Thanksgiving like? <laughs> it was great. Um, we, uh, we had some family come in and it was really the first time we've done that since COVID started. So our kids had a blast and I definitely hit my Whatever the, the optimal level of engagement for an introvert is, I cleared it, and I'm very glad that we have our, our house to ourselves. Yeah, you're probably, still, uh, you're probably still recovering for sure. Now, we're going to spend some time talking about Think Again today, and I have to admit, one of my biggest fears since we started booked this in April is that you might rethink your appearance, so I am so glad to see you uh, here and on time. Well, I still could, right? So... Be careful what you say. Yeah, that's very, that's very true. And, and uh, I know I would be remiss if, if, I, uh, if I didn't mention the orchestration, the brilliant orchestration of, of, uh, of Anne Wynn, who arranged for you to, uh, to join the 10-year celebration I had of my time at Results. And you surprised me there. And that's how this whole thing came to be. Um, now, the other thing I, I was thinking about leading up to today is most of our listeners wouldn't be aware that you have your fingerprints all over this show. And I'm quite confident in saying that Unleashed might not exist, or at least not in the fashion that it does, if not for your influence. Because when we launched it, you know, close to two years ago, the first thing I did, of course, was as I do, I reach out to you to ask if you'd participate. Uh, and in the way that you gracefully declined, you said, no, but here's five people you should ask. And so I asked those five people, most of them came on, and then since then, they've introduced us to others, and you've kept introducing us to others. So this show is literally uh, a byproduct of, of, of a lot of the giving that you've done for me and for our team. So thank you for that. Well, I, I will say I recommend a lot of people for a lot of opportunities, and it is pretty rare that all of them come back and say, I love this guy. You have to get to know him. So... I think it seems like I was doing them a favor by putting them in touch with you. Yeah, that's, uh, that's kind and generous. Uh, thanks, thank you for saying that. Now, the interesting thing about this conversation when it comes to Think Again, at least one of them, is all of this hindsight that we have now. So the book came out in February. Uh, you've been on the speaking tour, done all the major promotions for it, of course. And I have to ask, like, do you ever get tired of talking about it? Maybe. Uh, I think it, it depends a lot on the conversation. I think there are days when I think, like, I wish somebody would ask me a new question or yeah. even challenge me to rethink something that 
you know, that I felt pretty strongly about. Um, but then I, I also remember that it's such a privilege to have a chance to share ideas. And you know, the, the fact that I have an audience that wants to learn um, means that like, it's, it's no different than, you know, than any other kind of performance, right? You could, like, you could ask Wayne Gretzky, did he get bored of, like, of skating? Like, well, yeah. maybe, but I get to play one of the greatest games on earth and I get to do it you know, in, in front of an incredible audience. Um, and I, I, by the way, I do not belong in Wayne Gretzky's league, but I, I think it's an interesting standard to, to aspire to, right? To say, okay, one of the signs that you've achieved real excellence is that people want you to play your greatest hits. Um, and so that doesn't mean you've, you've just been typecast. It doesn't mean that, that you're failing to learn and grow. Um, it means that people want to hear what you had to say on that topic. And so, I, you know, I, that, yeah, there are moments when I, I think, well, eh, I don't really want to rehash that. And then I think, wow, it's amazing that people want me to rehash that. Totally. You, you remind me of Glenn Fry. It was an awesome Eagles uh, documentary where Glenn Fry said he was so sick of playing Take It Easy. But the thing that kept him going is he realized that that night somebody might be seeing them in concert for the first time. And that was always enough to, uh, to give it his all. So I think that's kind of my hope today. I know some people tuning in will have seen everything you've done. Some people, this might be their first you. introduction to you. So maybe we'll cover some new ground, maybe we won't, but I, I'm hoping we can give people enough information. And I mean, did, did you have any idea when you wrote the book that it was gonna be as timely as important as it's become? No, I had no idea. I thought, and honestly, every time I've sat down to write a book, I'm trying to take on a timeless topic. Uh, I think, like, I, I like to leave timely to, frankly, to the news. And I, I think that often <laughs> the, the topics that, that were timely today are forgotten yesterday. Um, or maybe tomorrow. I'm not really sure in which direction that would go. But the, the gist of it is um, I, I want to I wanna write about issues that matter to human beings, period. Um, I, I did have a hunch that rethinking was becoming more important, that as the pace of change was accelerating, that it was becoming more sort of more vital for people to question their assumptions and their convictions, um, and that people who didn't revisit their decisions would, would probably regret it more than in past versions of the world. Uh, but I had no idea that a pandemic was coming. I had no idea that we were going to be seeing headlines about, uh, I, I felt like every fourth word was like rethinking. And I was like, where we work. It was how we get our food. It was what we can do safely. And then the great resignation came and now all these people are rethinking their work lives. And it was like the, the perfect storm of like my, my interest in rethinking and my passion about trying to make work not suck. And so I, I, I kind of feel guilty, honestly, Jeff, because I'm one of the, I feel like I'm one of the few people who's actually in some ways benefited from the pandemic. Yeah, well, but for all the right reasons. And I, you know, I think as time goes on, I think, again, almost should be required reading. It's, it's that essential for the world that we live in. And the complexities, I think, that cause us to stay true and, and uh, hold our ground on our beliefs are only going to work more against us. And so if we don't deliberately learn some new tools, uh, I think it's, I think it's going to even get more problematic. So, um, so really important stuff. So, Adam, let's start to talk just a little bit about sort of the... Uh, the, uh, the origins of Think Again. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about some of the work like, uh, from Phil Tetlock that informed the foundation, at least the early foundation of the book. Yeah, I, I think right before I graduated from college, I read this paper of Phil's where he, he made what I thought was a, a riveting argument that we're supposed, to, we're supposed to approach our decisions and um, in many cases, our judgments objectively. We don't. Um, we approach them because we're, we're locked into a social world. 
and we have a role to play that tilts us in a particular direction, um, usually wanting to be right or wanting other people to be wrong. And he broke that down. I, I fiddled a bit with his terminology, but the, the gist of it was he observed that too many of us spend too many of our days thinking like preachers, prosecutors, and politicians. So in preacher mode, you're basically proselytizing your views. In prosecutor mode, you're attacking somebody else's views. And in politician mode, you don't even listen to people unless they already agree with your views. And what I, what I thought was interesting about that first was, as, as an organizational psychologist, the fact that people had internalized these occupations that they never worked in or studied for, right? I, like I have fa family members who are lawyers, but I never practiced law, um, yet I find myself prosecuting almost on an hourly basis. Um, I've never you know, had any interest whatsoever in preaching or in politics, but I catch myself slipping into those modes occasionally too. And the, the idea that, that you know, instead of being rational, people were doing all this rationalizing, um, to me was, was both troubling and fascinating. And it was one of those frameworks where once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. And I never knew what I wanted to do with it, but it, it had been in the back of my mind almost for two decades. Do some of the personas and the metaphors trump others? Uh, like, for example, like I think about it like rock, paper, scissors a little bit. And I know like if I'm if I'm in a conversation with a prosecutor, I will often turn into politician mode or or maybe borderline scientist mode. But I'm not sure which is which. But do some of the some of the personas have power over other ones? Boom. OK, so this is a great example of a question that no one has asked me in the span of a whole year of talking about this book. And I, I think you're onto something. I would love to see more data on this, but I'll, I'll just tell you from my own experience. Um, I, my worst moments of prosecuting are when I run into somebody who's just locked into preacher mode. And I, you know, I think somebody is trying to pour me a, like a, some version of Kool-Aid uh, and I'm, I'm not buying it. I'm like, no, let me, let me set, I have to set the record straight. I'm gonna correct you. Um, it's my professional responsibility as a social scientist. It's also my moral responsibility as a human being. Like, you are wrong. Um, and the, the, more kind of, the, the more conviction they express, um, the harder I attack. And I think, I think that there might be a couple explanations for that. One is that the, the, the preacher and the prosecutor are sort of naturally opposed. I think there's also a possibility there that we all have emotional triggers um, where you know, there's, there's a style that we gravitate toward most. There's also a style that is, is most likely to violate our values. Um, and people believing things that aren't true and trying to spread them, um, it bothers me a lot. In some ways, it bothers me even more than when people go into politician mode because I recognize that you know, we all live in a world where you sometimes have to say things that are going to please people um, in order to get their attention or to get their support. Um, and I don't think that always means that you lack integrity, right? It means that you have a goal and you're trying to, to do whatever you can to achieve the goal. Um, so I'm, I don't like the politician mode either, but the, the preacher mode just, I'm like, okay, you, you literally are not capable of acknowledging the truth. That is a problem for me. Yeah, well, and I'm like, personal disposition would play a big factor, I would imagine, like for myself, like I, I, I wanna be liked by people. And I have this. Hadn't noticed. I have really? this fear, right? I have this fear of being like pantsed in public. And so it prevents me from being too tied to any of my beliefs. And I, I think before your book came out, I, I often felt like I was way too wishy washy. I needed to have way more conviction and courage of my beliefs. And then I felt seen 
when I read the book, I thought, you know, maybe it's not all that bad. I still think at times I could, I, I, I could and maybe should have more, uh, more prosecutor in me because uh, I tend to be more politician, I think, and, uh, and, and then, of, of course, scientist now that I've discovered that. That's interesting. I wonder if I, I wonder if I pushed you too far in the other direction there. <laughs> so I, I don't want you to just have no conviction ever, right? I like I, I don't want you to wake up tomorrow and say like, well, like the Earth probably I don't know might not be round, like could could be flat, could be shaped like a frisbee, right? That that's a little bit worrisome. So I I don't think you should you should always um, just you know be completely open minded. Um, I, I want you to, to have strong beliefs when they're grounded in rigorous logic and strong evidence. Um, and I think many of us cling to opinions that aren't, and that's, that's where I want rethinking to happen. So have you overcorrected on this? Is it possible? Yeah, well, I, I, I think so. And I, I still think I'm struggling though. Here's, here's, my, here's my challenge. And this was, a, I was gonna bring this up later, but it's timely. So at what point, so start off as a scientist and test your hypotheses, at what point can you be confident enough that you've got enough, you've collected enough data that you can take a more firm stand? Don't know. I think this is, this is one of those questions that, that varies so much by the particular issue and the kind of data you're looking at that I don't know if there's a general rule. Um, I do know that if you talk to a serious physicist, like I, I met a Nobel Prize winning physicist over the summer, um, I asked him if the shape of the earth was settled science. And he said, there's no such thing as settled science. And I said, what are you talking about? Are you saying that like, there, there's only you know, a 99% probability that the earth is round? He said, of course not. Right? I think the, I mean, we, we've known for half a millennium um, that, you know, that the shape seems to be round. We can see it in pictures. But I know how, how often those beliefs were held about prior versions of the solar system. Um, we used to think it was geocentric, for example. It doesn't seem to be. And so what I have to do is I have to hold on to a little bit of humility and a little bit of doubt to know that, like, yeah, I might, you know, I might not realize that in a thousand years people are going to discover that it's not perfectly round. And I think his, his point, which I, I think is very well taken, is that there's no amount of evidence that should ever make you 100% certain because science is not designed to verify it's designed to falsify, right? At least if you take a Karl Popper view of, of falsification. Um, if, you, if you really go deep into the philosophy of science, we are much better at ruling out theories that are wrong than we are at confirming theories that are right. And so you should always be willing to accept the possibility that even your strongly held views are wrong. Um, I think for me, what that means is I'm, I'm looking at, do I have enough evidence that, um, that I think my probability of being right um, is, is high enough that I'm not going to be embarrassed <laughs> if, if I find out I'm wrong. In other words, would a reasonable person in a situation like this assume that, that this is probably true? Uh, and that's, that's where I like to draw the line. Yeah, well, and, and the average person doesn't have time to go searching for a whole bunch of data points as well. So I, I, I like the advice on probability. I mean, I have to admit a lot of my default is to find organizational psychologists, if we're talking about business stuff, so I'll, I will go and see, okay, what does Amy Edmondson say about this? What does Adam Grant say about this? That's good enough for me. <laughs> and, and on the <laughs> medical side, like I've got, I got Dr. Jen Gunter, so whatever she says, I'm good with that. So that's kind of where I, where I start and, and end some of this. Otherwise, you could just get down on this vicious cycle. But is, is my approach a good one or a bad one? So that's interesting. So what you're doing is basically you have a heuristic. Uh, you're using source credibility as a proxy for information credibility. 
Um, and I think you're, you're doing this in a way that I like much better than what I see most people do, which is like, let's, let's take Twitter, for example, where you and I met. Um, very auspicious beginning to this relationship, Jeff. Uh, I, we just get a blue check mark, right? Or not. And the, the signal is that you're a verified person and therefore you might know what you're talking about. I don't deserve a blue check mark in every domain. Right? You should not listen to me on things that have nothing to do with work or psychology because I don't know what I'm talking about. And what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to look at the domain of the person's expertise and I'm going to treat that as a clue that they're probably more likely to be right than wrong on the set of issues that fall within that domain. I, th I think it's a really good heuristic. I think it breaks down based on you know, how good they are at, at synthesizing evidence. Um, it can fall apart if, you know, if they do have strong views on a particular issue, if they're not thinking like a scientist and they've, you know, they've kind of, without even realizing it, um, fallen into preacher, prosecutor, or politician mode. Um, but I think on average, it, it probably makes you more right than wrong. Um, maybe it leaves you at, at a little bit at the mercy of some conventional wisdom that, that's just been taken for granted too long and hasn't been rigorously scrutinized. But I think you can, you can probably assume that most of the things that experts in, in well-studied domains say are, are right as opposed to wrong, given what we know today. Yeah, well, it, the other thing I find contributes to it is we've never seen such a, uh, such a set of divergent opinions and spectrum of opinions from people that have such large social platforms. And like last week, there's a, uh, there's a guy with a big LinkedIn following and he made the assertion that to get through a pandemic, it's vital that you have a vaccinated population and an unvaccinated population. And I thought, well, that is interesting. I'd like to learn more about that. But I am terrified to talk about that because I, I know what would happen on social platforms. First of all, if it's proven to be uh, um, uh, false and knowing kind of what the narrative is on, so, uh, on social. So it kind of prevents me at least from dipping my toe in the water to what could be some really healthy debates. What you, what's, your, uh, what's your thoughts on that? Well, my first thought is don't get medical advice on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> like not, not the primary source of public health information to Fair. my knowledge. <laughs> uh, my, my second thought is, you know, I think if you were to build a hierarchy of, you know, what are, what are the clues that a, tr a source is trustworthy? I think the, the gold standard for reliable evidence for me is a, a meta-analysis, a study of studies of either randomized controlled trials or where you can't have those longitudinal studies that are, um, that are ruling out lots of alternative explanations. And so, you know, if, if I were to reach out to someone like, like Jen, for example, on health, which is something she knows a lot more about than I do, I would ask her not just what do you think of that, but what's the meta-analysis that I should read that's most likely to inform that. And she may say there isn't one. We don't have enough data on pandemics yet. Um, and there was a century in between the last one and this one, and we, we haven't do, been doing careful enough prospective studies, and we, we haven't really had the natural experiment that nobody consented to. Um, and then I would ask, okay, well, what are the best epidemiological models that I should look at? Um, and how should I then evaluate which ones are right and which ones are wrong, or which ones are more likely to be right and which ones are more likely to be wrong? And so I, I don't want to just rely on the expert altogether, right, or the person spouting opinions on LinkedIn. What I want to do is I want to find out what are their sources, what are their criteria for evaluating the credibility of a source, and then I can make a slightly more informed judgment. And if we can't gather that information, should we just avoid getting into the conversations altogether? I don't know, what are you trying to accomplish? Well, I know, it's, I think what I'm trying to accomplish is to try to understand the truth. 
That's, that's really what it is. And then if I can understand the truth, knowing that the truth doesn't usually exist in polarity, that, and, and that I can somehow have a, uh, a meaningful influence on people that are in, in my own circle or, or close to me. But it's really a, a hunt for the truth and not wanting to, to find out in two years that I, I, I kind of hung my hat on, on a false set of circumstances. I think what I would say to you on that, this is, it's a really interesting question because I, I also want to get to the truth. Um, I want to draw the line though on, on what issues is it my responsibility to get to the truth? Yeah. So if, if, I'm, if I'm only moderately informed on vaccines, are people going to be dramatically worse off than if I become a world expert on vaccines? I don't think so. There are already a lot of experts. This isn't my training. It's not my skill set. Uh, so I guess I set a much lower bar for how much do I need to know as an informed citizen um, than I would if I were actually trying to, to shape other people's judgments and decisions. And so I think, I guess it, it requires a choice about where do you want to be a source of knowledge um, or a producer of it? And where do, are you comfortable just being a consumer of it? Yeah. Jerry Seinfeld, you remind me of something Jerry Seinfeld said on one, one of his driving in, uh, car, driving in cars with comedians, having coffee. He said, like, never, you used to have to earn your voice, and now anybody can, uh, anybody can have a voice. So I think that's great advice. Uh, many conversations perhaps should just be kept to ourselves uh, and off social platforms. Uh, Adam, I, I want to talk about identity a little bit and, and the role that identity plays in us changing our minds and, and rethinking our, our position on things. And I, I loved what to happen to me on Saturday because it was just so serendipitous. I was uh, having a great Saturday, beautiful weather up here in Western Canada. I just finished running stairs, had that, you know, basking in the afterglow of a, of a workout, get in my vehicle and I hear the buzz on my phone. And it's a text message from a friend. And my friend has sent me an unsolicited article on COVID. And, and all, all I could read was the title of the article, and it said, why do people willingly sacrifice their freedom? And this is from a friend I know is not vaccinated, so immediately I went into, um, well, I got, I got really anxious, a lot of anxiety spiked for me, and I went into prosecutor mode, and the first thing I said, well, clearly that author uh, does not care at all about changing people's perspectives or engaging, uh, engaging people from various uh, spectrums of, of, of view here, because it's a very binary article. So that author is only going to appeal to people that already agree with him. And I basically sort of went off on her and I realized after, well, this is probably not the best approach for meaningful debate, but what's the role? I mean, you can provide me some, some coaching here. How should I have responded? And then what's the role that identity plays in rethinking? Well, it's, I think it's a perfectly reasonable strategy if you're, if you're, you're having a, a formal debate and you're being judged by a neutral audience, right? Or if you're in a courtroom with a, with a jury uh, and you are a prosecutor. I think if you're trying to have a thoughtful conversation and maybe open the other person's mind, yeah, not the best track to get on. And I, I say this as somebody who still launches into prosecutor mode much more often than, than I would like or even like to admit. Um, Let's, uh, let's, let's take an example before we, we talk about identity. Um, I want to I sort of shift gears a little bit for you. Um, I, think, I think you're sort of a fan of Tom Brady. Is that right? Uh, sort of, yes. <laughs> Although I'm very, <laughs> I'm very conflicted now with both the Patriots and Brady doing extremely well. It's a, it's a very difficult position to be in. I, I will say I'm, I started out pretty favorably disposed to Tom Brady. He's obviously, I'm a Michigan guy. He's a Michigan guy. Um, I'm not nearly the fan that you are of his. 
So I wanted to ask you about Deflategate. Oh God. Let me, let me just say, I, I'm so curious, Jeff, as, as a fan of Tom Brady, but also as somebody who really wants to get to the truth. What is the probability, zero to 100, that Tom Brady was involved in inflating footballs, if you had to guess? 99. I should say deflating, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, nine, <laughs> not, thank goodness they didn't run up the score until they were properly inflated in the second half against the Colts, but uh, 99 out of 100. At, at least some general awareness of what, of what was happening. Huh, okay. And what do you think is the probability that he was the ringleader? Seventy-five. Really? Yeah. Okay. So how how can you say that as one of the world's biggest fans of Tom Brady? I'm so surprised by this, Jeff. Well, I I think that there's so much gamesmanship that goes in to that level of competition, and my my one of my big assertions on the whole Deflategate thing is is that it was like I compared it to an illegal stick penalty in hockey, where it's a very minor infraction, but it blew up. To, to proportions that were only uh, that only were created because it was the New England Patriots, the mystique around the unbeatable franchise. Okay, interesting. So this is obviously a tiny bit of motivational interviewing here. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to prosecute you. I'm genuinely curious about where you stand on this issue and why. And so if I, obviously this would be a much longer conversation if we were actually going to go through the interview. But what, if I can hold up a mirror on what I just heard, I think what I heard is you, you identify as a Tom Brady fan. Um, I think you would, you would be pretty excited if he came out Unleashed, for example. Um, and you also, though, have this identity as somebody who's really interested in finding out what's true. And so those two things are in conflict a little bit when it comes to Deflategate. And the way that you reconciled them was you basically minimized the severity of the problem, but acknowledged that it existed and he was a contributor to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, if they handled it differently right, right from the onset, it might, it might not have been, uh, it might not have been so big. Now you, you bring up motivational interviewing and most of the audience will not be aware of what that is, Adam. And I'm fascinated by it. Uh, could you talk just a little bit more high level about what motivational interviewing is? Yeah, it's, um, it's this incredible, I, I would say way of being, um, as much as it is a, a set of skills that was developed by uh, two counseling psychologists, uh, Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick, where they were working in the, ad the addiction world. And they noticed that so much of addiction treatment was preaching at people that they needed to get off drugs or prosecuting people for like, you're a bad person for drunk driving. And it just made people defensive. And they realized you can't force somebody to change their mind or their behavior very easily, but you can help them find their own reasons to change. And so motivational interviewing is basically the, the process of, of coming into a conversation knowing I have no clue what would, would shift your attitudes or your behaviors, and I'm really curious to find out. And so I'm going to ask you open-ended questions. I want to hear your reasons for you know, maybe thinking that, that Tom Brady is, you know, is totally in the clear. Um, I also want to hear your reasons for thinking he might be guilty. And then what I want to do is, is help you see your own ambivalence that you actually have you know, multiple conflicting beliefs or mixed motives. And then I might want to elicit more of the change talk. So you know, I, might, I might say, hey, Jeff, you know, it's, it's really interesting that you think there's a 75% probability uh, that he was actually the ringleader of this thing. I, I, I would have thought you would have told me a 0% probability or maybe a 1% or 2%. So what made you so convinced that that's true? 
Um, and then, you know, as you elaborated your own reasons for that belief, right, you're, you're a little bit more open, and open to admitting that he's, you know, maybe responsible for cheating, even if it wasn't a big deal. Um, you're a high integrity person. You don't want to root for a cheater. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it was also informed by other quarterbacks that were talking about what had happened. And like Aaron Rodgers and Peyton Manning, I think, came to Brady's defense and saying they play with the, the, the PSI and the footballs all the time. So, so, so that was part of it. So this whole concept of motivational interviewing is like it, it is such a powerful, uh, uh, powerful skill set. But what if you don't care about somebody else's perspective, but they're a very important person to you? Like if it's a topic that you've made up your mind, you really don't care uh, about their perspective on it. Like do you, if you have to interact with them, are there ways that you can somehow generate authentic curiosity like, or just avoid the conversation? What do you do with that? I don't think it's easy, but I think the thing I found most useful is something that Bob Sutton taught me uh, in a very different domain when, when he was talking about how to deal with um, highly disagreeable takers, which some people call by a, a much less polite name than I just did. Um, so he was, he was reflecting on, on some of his research on the no a-hole rule and what do, you, what do you do if you're stuck working with one of these people? You can't fire them, you can't change teams, you can't avoid them altogether. And he had a, a colleague who said, I, I guess the guy had been a dean for a long time, and you know, all these tenured faculty, some of them were, you know, were a little bit on this, this axis uh, or this pair of axes. Uh, and I guess the, the gist of it was the guy said, well, I, I just, I look at them as an interesting specimen. Like I think of myself as an eight-hole speci specialist, and my job is to, like, to study them. And it makes me a little bit less furious and a little bit more curious. And I have, I have to tell you, Jeff, I have started applying the same thing to people whose beliefs I find objectionable or ridiculous is I say, okay, what would a good scientist do in this situation? Um, I, I have this happen recently with, with people who are staunch believers in astrology. Um, sorry, by the way, yes. if anyone is I, yeah. deeply most, offended, deeply most, offended most by of my inst Most of the people I follow <laughs> on Instagram seem to be. Oh, wow. Well, that, that is another conversation, but I, um, you know, I was, I think I was, I was really far in the prosecutor direction. And then I said, wait a minute, what would a scientist do? What a scientist would do is say, what, like, what an interesting phenomenon that people believe these things that I have really strong empirical data are false. Um, like, I have to know, like, how did they form these beliefs? Why do they cling to them? And now all of a sudden I want to understand them better. Uh, and so that, that brings out a lot more of the curiosity. Uh, I think it's, like for me, sometimes this is true on anything that somebody disagrees with me strongly on. I think the farther apart we are on what we believe, the more I can learn from how they think. And I guess what that means for me concretely is I'll say, okay, the, the moment I'm like, oh, that's wrong or that's ridiculous. How can they possibly believe that? I'm like, ooh, today I have met the closest version of the closest thing to an alien that I will encounter this week. And so if an alien came to earth, I would be so intrigued. Like, where did you come from? What made you who you are? Why are you here? Um, how have your views changed over time as you've encountered humans, right? And I want to have the same kind of conversation uh, with this human alien. And I, and I guess it would apply no matter what persona they were in in the moment. It wouldn't matter if they were a preacher, uh, a prosecutor, uh, as an example, or a politician. You, you could just apply that same level of, uh, of curiosity. 
I, and I should, right? Because part of the reason that I became an organizational psychologist is I am endlessly fascinated by what makes people tick yeah. um, and what drives them to do what they do and believe what they believe. And so this is a prime opportunity to understand for what for me is a mystery of human motivation. Like how, did you, how did you land in a place where you think this is true? I want to come back to this notion of identity and because I, I don't fully understand our attachment to it. And, and you make the assertion that rethinking is largely based and, and it, we're threatened and get anxious because of our identities. So why is it so hard for us to have our identities threatened? I think some of it has to do with a, a, just a sense of competence, right? That if, if I have to admit that one of my beliefs is wrong, then it's a threat to my intelligence. Um, I, I might not be smart. Um, I associate being smart with being right. Um, and if I have to abandon something I thought was true and say it was false, now I'm dumb. Um, I think there's, you know, we, we obviously live in a world also that reifies leaders who have all the answers, when in fact we should be celebrating the leaders who ask great questions. I think there's another piece of this, which is also about um, the social element of, of letting go of your beliefs. Um, it's a real threat to belonging. Uh, we, you know, we often form right. groups around people with shared views. And so if I all of a sudden unbelieve something that we all think is true, then I'm at risk for being excluded and maybe even ostracized. Yeah, that, that belonging piece really resonates with me. I think that's, that's a bit of a game changer on under, understanding it a bit better. So what are some of the antidotes to that? How do we avoid being so fixed in, in our identity and our beliefs? Don't let your ideas become your identity. Like for me, it's, it's as simple as that. My identity is not what I think is true. It's what I think is important. And you, you actually captured this earlier, Jeff. Like your, your identity is wrapped up in being someone who wants to see the truth. And I think you even told me that that's more important to you than being a member of the Patriots or Tom Brady tribe, right? <laughs> and so once yeah. you're, you're superseding you know, the content of your beliefs or your attachments um, with, with this value that you have of, of you want to get to the right answer, um, then you, you stay intellectually flexible. Um, you're constantly willing to reconsider because you have this higher order goal uh, of, of wanting to find out what's real. Uh, and that, I think if, if that's your steering motivation, it's, it's a little bit easier to avoid getting sucked into all these identity traps. Yeah, yeah, no, fair, fair enough. Uh, I got a bit of an odd question for you maybe, but why do you think Dunning-Kruger effect ex exists from an evolutionary standpoint? Ooh. Ooh, this is fun. Um, I, I tend to be a little bit of a skeptic about a lot of claims that come from evolutionary psychology because okay. they're, they're hard to test. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, okay, you know, I, I get how if you can make a, you know, a really cohesive argument that a particular set of traits was adaptive, then it would be selected over time and retained and it could explain a lot about who we are. Um, but I just, I, I often want to see better evidence and you know, we, it's hard to redo evolutionary history, right? So, you know, you end up getting simulations, you end up getting some, some studies that, you know, that sort of test hypotheses against alternative hypotheses and say, well, we found support for the evolutionary one. I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't mean the evolutionary story is right. Okay. I, I feel like that disclaimer is necessary. Um, I think that the Dunning-Kruger effect, which I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, is um, the tendency to, for the people who are least knowledgeable or the least skilled to be the most overconfident about their knowledge and skills. Um, I think if there were an evolutionary case for why that existed, it would be that um, initially, uh, when, when somebody, I, I, I can think of two off the top of my head. 
So one is that, that when people try to judge your competence, they often can't observe it directly, right? You can't climb into somebody's head and measure the efficiency of their mitochondria to figure out if they're geniuses, right? You can't get inside somebody's mind um, and trace their, like their neocortical dopamine sensitivities to figure out if they're an introvert or an extrovert. Um, you can't necessarily scan their brains for creativity very easily. And so you, you often look at their confidence as a signal of their competence. And so I, I, there's probably some adaptive advantage in groups where yeah. people are assertive, uh, where they have a lot of conviction, where they express certainty, uh, because you can assume then that they must know what they're talking about. Um, and that means that maybe there was, I guess, a, an adaptive advantage of, of you know, being likely to overestimate yourself. Um, but why would that advantage exist? Or why, why would that overconfidence exist at the, the very low levels uh, of confidence? And why would it change over time? I think it, it potentially changes over time because it's, um, it's dangerous to stay in that zone of, of overconfidence. Um, you don't learn, you might get eaten by a predator, who knows? Uh, I think what happens over time, if I had to guess, is that there's, there's also a reward for improving your knowledge and skill. And so as, as people start to then put in more practice or gain more information, there's now an incentive to, to keep becoming more competent, which means you have to better calibrate your confidence. Um, I think that's one convoluted story I guess you could tell. I think that I'll try one other, which is I think that um, initially, like if you look, you know this, the, the, I think the Sanchez and, and Dunning work suggests that complete novices are not overconfident. It's people who have a little bit of knowledge or a little bit of skill um, who overestimate their expertise. And I think maybe the reason that happens is because it keeps you motivated to learn. Uh, that, you know, as when you, like, I, I remember the first time I ever played golf, which was the only time I've ever played golf. I was horrible at it and I never wanted to do it again. Um, if I could instead experience the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, and as I practiced and I got to the fourth or fifth hole, I suddenly started to overestimate my ability. Now I, I have a, a reason to keep going, right? Yeah. And keep playing because I start to see room for improvement. Maybe I start to shift from a fixed to a growth mindset. And so over time then, um, maybe early overconfidence as it builds could lead people to keep going long enough to actually build their competence. Um, unfortunately, that's not what happens in our current world, right? A lot of times people get stranded at that st summit of Mount Stupid where their, their competence is really low, their confidence is really high, and they think they have nothing left to learn. And that, that to me is really scary. And I'm going to stop my hand waving here. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. And <laughs> I, I love evolutionary theories, but I think because I think they're fascinating for me and, and uh, I think it's easier for me to discard them if I realize they, you know, they kind of help ne Neanderthals. And I, I had a weird kind of hypothesis that I, I wondered if it was somehow a gateway to curiosity, progress, and innovation, as you know, Neanderthals are discovering fire, as an example. So I think uh, <laughs> I, I think you've kind of uh, you hit on some of those things too. And and so the antidote then for the Dunning-Kruger effect is what you call confident humility. What is confident humility? It's it sounds like a paradox at first because a lot of people think like the more confident you are, the less humble you are, and vice versa. Uh, but I, I think the Latin roots of humility show us that that doesn't have to be the case. It, it translates roughly to from the earth to be humble. It means you're grounded, right? That you know you're fallible. Uh, and you can believe that you're human and still also believe that you have the capacity to do extraordinary things. So for me, confident humility is being secure enough in your strengths to acknowledge your weaknesses. 
It's being comfortable enough in your knowledge to admit what you don't know. It's doing what Adam Silver did when, when COVID started and he was the first commissioner of a professional sports league to shut down play altogether in the NBA. And he said to his team, look, I don't know how we're going to get out of this, but I'm confident we have a great group of people to figure this out together, right? Admitting what he doesn't know, but also having a belief that he's, he's capable of, of overcoming the challenges in front of him. Um, and I, I don't think that means as a leader, you wander around saying, um, I know a lot of people have imposter syndrome, but I am an actual imposter. Like, I'm not qualified for this job. I don't know why I was promoted. And it's only a matter of minutes until everyone finds out that I'm a fraud. Right? That, that's, that's not confident humility. Uh, confident humility is saying, uh, I, you know, I, I have a, a few ideas. I have some frameworks. I have some questions. Um, I'm not sure if any of them are right yet. I'm not sure we have the expertise we need. Uh, so let's, you know, let's go through the following steps to try to get to the bottom of this. How do we learn it? I think it depends on whether you're trying to build your confidence or, building your, or build your humility or both. Mm. So which, which one are you curious about? Well, I think it's more, uh, I think it's more the humility side. Well, I know of a few ways to, <laughs> I guess, to nurture humility. One is to, to surround yourself with people who are more knowledgeable or more skilled than you. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's pretty hard to, to live at that summit of Mount Stupid if, you know, if everyone around you has expertise that you don't. Um, I think another strategy that, that seems to be pretty effective um, is ironically to affirm people's competence in domains that are unrelated to where you're trying to build their humility. So there's this whole body of research in psychology on what's called self-affirmation theory. And it's the finding, and this works especially well with narcissists who tend to be arrogant and overconfident in the first place, um, that if, let's say you wanted to, to convince um, a leader that they're a horrible decision maker, uh, or you know, maybe that's, that's just a bridge too far, you wanted to convince them that maybe their decision making was not flawless, and they have things to learn about how to, you know, how to actually weigh different options and consider the alternatives on the table. What you'd want to do is you want to affirm a completely unrelated skill set of theirs. So you might go to that leader and say, hey, Jeff, I really admire your creativity. You are brilliant at thinking outside the box. You come up with solutions I never would have dreamed of. And now your, your ego isn't totally attached to your decision-making skill, right? You, you don't have all your eggs in the decision-making competence basket when it comes to judging your self-esteem or gauging your own worth. And so you're a little bit more receptive to hearing hey, I do want to talk about the decision process because we've generated some really amazing alternatives. I'm worried that we might be choosing one that's crazy. <laughs> or I'm a little bit concerned that this option that's totally outside the box is outside the box for a reason. Um, and I want to make sure that we've, we've thoroughly evaluated the consequences that it might have. Um, and that, that, I think, is, is a really effective way to build humility um, in a way that's domain-specific, right? It doesn't, it doesn't require you to take a Steve Jobs and turn them into the most humble person on earth, right? All it does is, is it invites you to say, okay, what, what is Steve Jobs great at that I can make him secure about that then will make him a little bit less insecure in the domain where maybe I have some constructive criticism to offer? Yeah, I like that. You also talk about adopting a mindset like a super forecaster. And in the research on super forecasters, they, they tend to change their minds more than, uh, uh, than average forecasters as an example. But here's, here's my sort of question, I guess, and, and my worry. 
in organizations, uh, if we're going to change our minds often and we're gonna do a lot of experimentation in the workplace, if you're just a typical employee and maybe you don't have a lot of job security yet, how do we not miss our potential budding superstars because they're doing a lot of experimentation and they may be failing a lot. So we might think they're floundering in their role, but they're actually on their way to some breakthroughs. Ooh, I think, I think this, is, this is such an important question for leaders to ask because I think we're constantly underestimating people who think like scientists. Uh, they often express their opinions more tentatively. To your point, they're, they're running lots of experiments and iterating with lots of different kinds of ideas, and, and many of those don't work out. And when people live their lives by trial and error, sometimes the errors loom larger than anything else. Um, I think w one way you could identify them is you could actually start running forecasting tournaments to recognize that almost every decision that you make as a leader in an organization is a forecast. So Jeff, when you hire somebody, you're making a bet on their future performance yeah. and their contribution to your culture, right? Yeah. Um, also, when you roll out a strategy, you're making a prediction about how the world is going to evolve and you know, what, what demand for your products and services are going to look like and where your customers are located. Um, and yet we, we don't really find out who's good at forecasting. And, and as you know from Phil's work, it is a general skill. right? As, as Phil puts it, it's, it's not so much how, what you know as how you think. And great forecasters tend to be rethinkers. So let me, let me give you an example of what a good forecasting tournament might look like. Um, I'm going to unleash something here, actually. This has not gone public. Uh, back in February, uh, I partnered up with the nonprofit Good Judgment. Uh, you probably saw we invited people around the world to participate in a Think Again forecasting tournament. And people spent months. Did you participate, by the way? No, I didn't. No. I'm very disappointed in you, Jeff Tetz. Very <laughs> disappointed. I feel uh, that. I feel that. Next round. Yeah. Uh, the, the tournament, we took a whole range of questions uh, and basically asked people who's going to win the commercial space race, uh, who's going to win a given Olympic event, uh, who's going to win a, an election in a certain country, uh, what's going to happen with self-driving cars in a given city. And people had to register all these predictions. Is this event going to happen in a defined time period? Yes or no. Or who's going to win? And then they got scored on their accuracy and their calibration. So not just were they right, but when they turned out to be right, had they expressed a lot of confidence? When they turned out to be wrong, had they expressed a lot of uncertainty? Did they know what they knew and what they didn't know? And it turned out that the best forecasters not only updated their predictions more often, uh, they also scored higher on my Think Like a Scientist assessment uh, rather than giving lots of preacher, prosecutor, and politician responses. And they updated faster. The best forecasters would register one prediction and then they would rethink it that day and yeah. update it. The worst forecasters, it would take them two, three, four days if they ever got around to rethinking to update it. And I think what they were doing there was they were harnessing what, uh, what's often called the inner crowd, right? To say in an ideal world, every prediction I make, I would find the wisest crowd and then I would take the average of them. I'm not going to do that for every choice I have in my life, but I can, I can take my inner crowd and know that the average of my first two forecasts is probably more accurate than the first one alone because I brought in additional information that wasn't obvious to me at the time, but then surfaced later. So if we wanted to do this in an organization, we could do a couple of things. One is run the, the forecasting tournament for hiring. Take all of your managers, have them look at the, the packets of all the candidates um, or even just the people who have been hired, um, which is a restricted range, but still meaningful. Um, have them rank them all from best to, first on, or best to worst on, on likely performance. Um, and then track how these people do. Um, and then you'll find that some managers are much better than others. 
you can either put the hiring decisions in their hands or you can reverse engineer what they do and let them teach their skills to others. But how then would you avoid, so if you did it with an existing team, how would you avoid the forecasters then applying some kind of a bias in how they treat those employees to tilt the scale uh, for success in, in their particular horse's favor, if you want to pick a horse um, analogy? Yeah, this is, this is one difference between organizational life and these international forecasting tournaments is often the forecasting tournaments happen on questions where no single human, at least not, you know, if they're not a head of state, could ever influence the outcome. But yeah. at work, we, we can. I, I would deal with that in a few different ways. One is I would say let's, let's blind the packets, just like we do blind auditions and orchestras. Uh, let's try to strip all the identifying information out. Um, maybe we'll just give quotes on interview answers, for example. Um, or we'll, you know, we'll strip a resume and, and create a few highlights that are, you know, that are not too tied to the person or the specific prior experience they had. That's, that's one option. A second option is to take your forecasting outside the domain where people do have control. So um, Justin Berg did this at Stanford. Um, he, he did his dissertation when he was here at Wharton on creative forecasting. And he got all these um, leaders and managers at, um, like in the circus arts, think Cirque du Soleil, for example, uh, to forecast the success of future acts. And then he released their videos on YouTube and he had people watch them and he looked at how many views they got and how many likes they got. And none of the managers right, could influence that because they weren't actually overseeing the, the particular circus artists whose videos were going live. Um, you could, I think a third option would be just take a domain where everybody's interested in your workplace. So um, I don't want to force everybody into the sports world, but <laughs> you, if you play fantasy hockey or fantasy baseball or basketball, um, there's no reason why you can't at the beginning of the season take all your sports fans who are really passionate about that sport and have them predict the, the future performance of players or teams. And then you will find that the better forecasters are not just distinguished by how much they know about that sport, right? They're, they're more open-minded. They're more willing to rethink. They consider more possible scenarios. Um, and that gives them a better shot at anticipating what's going to happen. So I, I guess I'd say find the domain where, where everybody is interested. Yeah, that's interesting. You, so you might be able to learn something uh, about your people and have some fun at the same time. And it, and it might apply more to a work example than you, than you think. In the opening? Yeah, actually, I saw, um, I saw a hedge fund CEO do this a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, he, he basically said, all right, we, we don't exactly do stock picking, but what we do is pretty similar to that. So yeah. let's do a, a stock picking tournament. He invited the whole company to do it. He finished in the bottom three and his executive assistant won. Wow. And I, I was hoping they'd switch jobs. They didn't. <laughs> yeah. But he realized that, that she was way underutilized in terms of her forecasting skill. Uh, he also realized that he had some biases that he needed to work on. So I think it's a pretty good learning opportunity. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, uh, one of my favorite parts to think again is the, is the very first paragraph. So you tell this story about a group of wildland firefighters who literally, um, they, they jump out of a plane to go fight a wildfire and it, the wind changes direction and the fire is about to engulf them. And unfortunately, a bunch of them uh, didn't survive uh, the ordeal, but a, a few of them did. And it's because they thought fast on their feet and they lit the brush in front of them and then ran ahead and laid in the burned brush so then the fire didn't have uh, you know, as, as much of an opportunity. So it, it makes me think about the ability to learn how to think on your feet the way that they did. And, and I've and I thought about all these historical examples where if people could actually be trained 
to think again without the benefit of having time, what would that, what, what, what would that have done for historical events? And uh, like 24 years ago, the movie Titanic came out, right, in December of 97. And I was so fascinated about that story. And at the time, A&E was running all of these specials and they had these historical experts on, uh, on what happened to Titanic and why it sunk. And one of the assertions that uh, an historian made was, had they made a different decision, instead of trying to port around the iceberg, they just ran into it straight on, the ship likely would not have sunk. So wow. if we would have talked earlier, maybe that would have made the book. But oh, that, that would have been a perfect example, actually. But can a person learn to think fast? Are you born with it? Or what conditions have to be at play for someone to be in that kind of a headspace? Sure. I, I think some of us do it more naturally than others, depending on you know, how open and curious we tend to be. But we, we can all improve it. And I think one of the simplest ways to do it, actually, is to play my favorite imp improv game, uh, which, which is called Shoulda Said. Uh, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever seen it? No, I don't think so. Oh, it's so great. The improv troupe in college that I, I loved watching, it was one of their, their staples. Uh, basically, like, two people would get up on stage and, and somebody would shout out a, a suggestion for what to talk about, and then they'd start this interaction. Um, but each person, if they didn't like what the, their peer said, could, like, you, let's say you said, well, I don't know, say something to me right now. Anything. Uh, uh, how much turkey did you, did you spill on your shirt because you were so uh, fed up from all your family at Thanksgiving? Eh, Should have said. What was, your, what was your favorite family memory from Thanksgiving? Oh, good question. Okay, and then they would run with it, right? Yeah. And I, I have, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've never told anyone this, but very often when, in a conversation like this, I will have a should have said that, that kind of goes off in my head. And that's, that's a, a cue for me to rethink, right? To say, yeah. okay, my first response is often not my most informed response. Uh, maybe there's another piece of evidence Maybe there's a different story I could have told. Maybe I should have asked you a question back. And for a long time, I ruminated. And I had these, um, these moments that I thought of, um, <laughs> I actually, I had an acronym for them. I called it ROMI, the regret of misinformation. And it, it was almost like um, George Costanza in that jerk store episode of Seinfeld, where he leaves, he, he leaves the, the, the meeting and he's like, that's what I should have said. And I would beat myself up over it. And then at some point I realized, the audience doesn't know that I had a better answer, right? All they know is what I told them. And so this is a learning device for me. If I keep practicing the should have said, right? I stay in the habit of rethinking. I think it's something we should all do. Yeah, uh, that is a great exercise. And I'm, I'm fortunate I'm surrounded by a team of advisors that have to think again in the moment like that, uh, almost on a daily basis with our clients. You just never know the kind of question or scenario uh, that's going to pop up in the work that we do with executive teams. So uh, I could see us benefiting from inserting that game uh, uh, into our workplace for sure. Try it at your own risk. Yeah, no, no doubt. So I, I want to I switch gears, Adam, uh, uh, away from Think Again, and there may still be some, uh, uh, some overlap here, but we had a you and I had a quick conversation in July, and it was around Adder Admiral McRaven. Now, you had him on your podcast, and I think it was early July, and you said that perhaps what he was the most impressive leader that you've ever met. What made him or makes him so impressive? I think he, he lives a lot of the values that I've spent my career studying. So I think he's you know, a quintessential giver rather than a taker or matcher. 
I think he's a person of very high integrity. I think he's very open to thinking again. And I think he does a remarkable job creating a culture of psychological safety. And you know, he, when I started on the Defense Innovation Board with him at the Pentagon, he was the most decorated person in every room, right? He led the, the bin Laden raid. He captured Saddam Hussein. And despite being a, a military hero, he was often the first person to say, listen, if you see me make, making a bad decision or you think I'm about to make a bad mistake, it is your responsibility to let me know. And he went on to explain that accountability was a two-way street, that of course he was going to hold people accountable for high standards. But he also expected them to hold him accountable for great leadership. And he said to his, his teams, I need you to protect me from myself. I wish more leaders would operate that way. Yeah. Can military leadership work in a business environment? <laughs> it depends what kind of military leadership, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, I, would like to th I would like to think that effective leadership uh, transcends industry and context. Uh, I think there are, you know, there are particulars that are, are obviously relevant to some places more than others. But you know, I, I've, I've had a chance to work with a lot of great military leaders over the years. And I, I can tell you that approximately none of them are the command and control, you know, scream at you stereotype that, that we see in the movies all the time. So uh, I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, well, there was something that Brené Brown said to you that really struck a chord with me and that was a lot of the military leaders that she's working with now talk about the, the necessity to have affection for their people. And if they don't feel affection and they can't find a way to, ha to create it, then they request that those people are maybe moved to a different, uh, a different platoon as an example. Of, co of course you hone in on that. That was my biggest should have said moment from that conversation with Brené was when she said, I think it was an Air Force leader who had told her, you cannot lead people you don't have affection for. Boom! It was such a mic drop moment that I didn't do anything with it. I'm like, oh, I have so many questions about, well, what does it mean to feel affection for people? Um, can you feel too much affection for them? How do you get the right amount of, of care and commitment without being blinded by your, you know, your enthusiasm for them? Um, we'll have to make that a follow-up. <laughs> well, no, for sure. Well, and, and I thought, wow, that, that is profound that she would say that. But then the other thing I thought was so often uh, the re what the research tells us about uh, um, like productive adversaries, and it's not the right term, but oftentimes strong relationships on teams come from people that very obviously and authentically are at odds with one another. I, I think that's so true. I, I bristle every time somebody says great minds think alike. Like, no, they don't. <laughs> Their job is to challenge each other to think differently, yeah. right? Being, yeah. being smart and curious doesn't mean you always arrive at the same answer. And it rarely means you have the same thought process. That, and that's a good thing. That means you learn more from each other and you have more friction. Yeah. You, uh, you mentioned to Dak Shepard uh, on his podcast that you kind of self-taught yourself in an advertising job in college on leadership tools. You, you kind of had this job and you, you didn't know the first thing about being a leader. So you thought, well, I'll, I'll just teach myself. As you've refined your approaches over the years, Adam, what are the most effective ways that just an average person can retain and absorb and apply more of what they're reading and learning? Um, I think for me, the most helpful here, we, we did a whole work-life episode on, um, on how to remember anything. And of, of all the things that I thought through and read, the one that has stuck with me is if you really want to remember something, um, you don't just want to repeat it. You actually want to share it. Um, so much of the knowledge that I've internalized has come from, 
I read something that I thought was, was incredibly interesting or I heard a podcast episode that I loved and my first thought was to share it with somebody. And yeah, I, this, this was not a selfless act. Like I, I want someone to talk to, to about this. Uh, and one of the things that I, I found was people were often you know, really touched that I had thought of them and that I wanted to have that conversation with them. But then to send it to them, I had to explain why it was relevant to them, why it was interesting, why it was important, why it was worth paying attention to. And then it stuck because I'd really made a case for it and I'd, I'd elaborated it and articulated it fully. So I think the best way to remember something is to share it. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's really great advice. And Adam, Adam, if you have time, I have, some, I have some personal questions I'd love to explore with you. I'm ready. All right. So you are a former magician. So I realize there may be some sorcery at play here, but how do you manage to help so many people? I don't ever feel like I help enough, help enough people. So you, you just have clearly low expectations. Um, I, I have days where I feel like I've, I've been efficient and helpful. And I, I think a lot of it comes from something I've been doing my whole career, but I didn't have a label for until I met Adam Rifkin, um, this, this great entrepreneur who said, look, a lot of helping is a five minute favor. Uh, it's just almost, it's almost a micro loan, um, except you never expect it to be paid back of your time, your skills, your network, uh, your knowledge. And I try to find, like, when, when somebody asks for help, I try to find the, the most straightforward way to add value. Um, and oftentimes that does not mean hopping on the phone with them, right? Or meeting with them. It yeah. means saying, you know what? I'm, like, right now I'm on sabbatical. I'm not taking calls. Um, in fact, why are we here? No, I'm, I'm thrilled that we got to do this. Um, it means, you know, asking, okay, would you, know, would you mind, and this will save you time too, could you just take one minute to spell out what you're looking for, and then I can figure out whether there's someone I know or something I know that might be helpful. Yeah, and I, I refer to you as the great enabler, and, and I actually am trying to adopt more of what I see your philosophy or approach to helping is, and one of your one of the things you're benefited from is you're so well read and you have you have a photographic memory, and uh, but what I've noticed is that when I reach out to you for help, you always help me, but you do it in such a way where you're not taking on the burden of the work. And and I think what you're doing is you're <laughs> saying here's a bunch of doors that if you're motivated enough to ask for help, then if you're motivated to open up these doors that I will show you there's a whole other level of awakening, awareness, knowledge, or capability that awaits you on the other side. And, and like, that's what you've done for me, and I have to think I'm not very unique. So I, I think there's a way that you, that you provide the help that allows you to maybe to do it faster and more, uh, more efficiently too. Well, that's, that's very kind. I think you know, a lot of it honestly comes from, it comes from actually feeling less responsible for, for other people than I used to. Um, if, if you had met me 15 years ago, I would, have, I would have fielded every one of your requests or questions personally. And I would have felt guilty if I didn't. I would have been desperate to have you like me. And I, I would have felt all this pressure to say yes to exactly what you're asking for. And at some point I realized that's actually not generosity. That's agreeableness, right? Just, just saying yes is being polite. It's not necessarily doing the thing that's most helpful. And also, like my, my wife Allison kept, kept saying to me, like, why are you helping that person? You only hear from them when they want something. 
Yeah. Uh, which, which actually does not mean to me that you're a taker, by the way, if, if you are that person. It means that, you know, we, like, I, I have lots of mentees that I don't expect to ever help me, but I want to hear from them whenever they, they need something, right? Mm. Um, and I, I've, I really believe in their potential and care about their success, and I want to do what I can within reason to, to try to help them. I think now I'm much less worried about being liked, and I'm much more interested in what can I contribute, and is there a unique impact I can have here? And what that means concretely in, in many situations is, like, I, I, yeah, I guess like, I, think, I think I'm the conduit to what you're seeking. Um, I don't have to be the solution. Yeah. Um, I don't want to be the white knight who rushes in to the rescue. Uh, yeah. I don't want to feel like it's, you know, it's my responsibility to do anything for anybody. Um, it is my responsibility, to, as you said, to open the door, right? And to point them toward the, the knowledge or toward the person or the resource that I know of. And so I, this is funny. I actually just, um, I never thought, I love the enabling language because somebody, somebody sent me a LinkedIn message this week, uh, somebody I hadn't heard from in years, and said, um, I'm, I'm writing a book. Can I interview you about these, these couple topics? And I said, I'm on sabbatical. I'm not, I'm not taking calls. But if you want to send me the questions, I'll take a look. And then the questions came in and I was a little bit annoyed. And then I was annoyed at myself for being annoyed. Um, I was like meta annoyed. I'm like, no, like I, I want to be the person who's happy to help, not the person who sees it as a burden. Then I realized I was annoyed because I thought this, this person was asking me questions that I wasn't fully qualified to answer um, and that the answers were already out there. And I realized, okay, this person obviously just doesn't know that. And it's, like, it's not their fault that they don't know that. So all I did was I, I wrote one sentence back and I said, I think you can find the information you're looking for in this book and this podcast. Yeah. And I was no longer annoyed. I felt like I was helpful. It cost me literally 15 seconds of my time. And I think that's how a lot more helping should happen. So enabling, that's exactly what I want to do. And yeah. I never had a term for it. And you've now helped me understand what, my, <laughs> what I'm trying to accomplish here. Yeah, well, you're great at it. And I, and I love that it puts the accountability back on the person who asked for help while still allowing you to be helpful. And, and so like how many times, I, I, don't want, I never want to be that kid that opens the fridge that's full of food asking mom, well, you know, what's for dinner? And, um, you know, well, it's full of food, you figure it out, right? So I, I want to I come to people for help, hopefully more often than not, where I've done everything I could to figure it out first, so I've got more thoughtful questions at the very least. But you, you, you are so good at, Jeff, a couple of things. One is, yeah, doing your homework, right, up front and making it clear that you've done that. And two, really making it clear that you're not just asking for yourself, that you have a question that matters to the people that you're, you know, that you're coaching or helping um, or that you want to share with your audience. Um, and that makes it feel so much more meaningful to, to try to do something because I'm like, okay, this is, this is somebody who really wants to give. And so hey, I want to give to givers as much as I can. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. And I think one of my big roles on our team um, unofficially is, is just hauling in information and, and, and data that they can use to be better at their jobs so we can make a bigger impact with the groups that we work with. Uh, Adam, you talk about imposter syndrome a lot in your, uh, in your literature, and, I, and I've seen some things on social media as of late. What activities give you the most performance anxiety or imposter syndrome? <laughs> uh, when do I feel the most imposter syndrome? I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever experienced it as a syndrome. Um, but there are definitely moments when I think people are overestimating me. Um, I, think, I think those moments happen, one, sometimes on stage. 
uh, when I'm asked to speak on a topic that I don't think I have real expertise on. I'm like, wait, you want, you want me to speak to how many thousands of people live when I've never addressed this topic before? And eventually I realized I should just stop agreeing to speak on topics that I'm not qualified to speak on. Yeah. And that, that solved that problem. I think another time is when I, um, when I find myself in a room with somebody who's just far more accomplished than I am. And I'm like, well, I, I don't belong here. Why, like, why was I put in this conversation? And usually what happens in those moments is I realize that they're human beings. And yes, they, they have some extraordinary strengths, but they also have some very visible weaknesses. And that nobody is better than anyone else and nobody, nobody deserves to be in someone else's company or not. Uh, and that, that helps a little bit. Those are, those are probably the two most common scenarios for me. Yeah, and it's hard to imagine there be a room where, where you, um, you wouldn't fit in remarkably well. And, and regardless of the subject matter, because I think you're such a wonderful listener, like you're, you're such an engaged, active listener, and, uh, and you're so curious by nature that you could, you could literally exist in, in, in any kind of conversation, uh, I'd have to think. <laughs> Thank you. I, I would like to think that's true, but um, I guess my revealed preference is I still, when, when I'm, when I'm in a room where I don't have a level of status, uh, people yeah. don't know who I am or I don't know the people at all, um, I default to shyness, uh, yeah. which, you know, which leads me then not, to not ask questions in the first place or you know, to, to stick to small talk instead of going deep, which yeah. is always a mistake for me. Um, yeah. Even if the, like, the deep conversation ends up being a little bit awkward, um, I still end up learning a lot more about the person and learning a lot more from the person. And I think a better version of me shows up. So I, sometimes I, I literally have to, before I'm walking in, into a room, say, okay, <laughs> are you gonna be the, the shy awkward or are you gonna be the interesting awkward? Your choice. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I remember when Clubhouse was a thing, how popular that was when the book first came out. That was very serendipitous, by the way, that that platform was there because it was massive. Think about some of the conversations that you had. Now, I, I love the particular uh, time where you kind of turned the tables on Dak Shepard and you hosted an interview with him and you had some celebrities uh, insert some questions, provide some questions. Malcolm Gladwell had an interesting one. And he asked kind of Dak Shepard and made the assertion that there's a price to be paid for being the greatest at something. And then Dax kind of went on to say that in some ways he's sort of, uh, he's really good with not being the best actor or the best director or, and he, he's, he's more than happy. And in fact, that he, that's what he wants because it allows him to have a, some semblance of normalcy. I think people could make the assertion that you are at or near the top of your mountain. And you, even though you're just getting started, has that brought any concern or problems or challenges for you? Of course, of course. One is that nobody's ever satisfied to stand on any mountain, right? I don't think I'm at the top of it, but when you can see the peak, you immediately start to look for the next biggest mountain. And so there's this creeping sense of dissatisfaction that, that kind of followed me for a long time wherever I went. You know, first it was like, wow, okay, I've, you know, I've sort of made it as an academic. And well, now I need to be an author. And then, oh, I, like, I, haven't, you know, I haven't reached a big enough audience yet. And my books haven't won enough awards. And then, oh, wait, I need to be a TED speaker too. And then I need to host a podcast, right? And the, the universe keeps getting bigger and there, you know, there are more ways to fall short of, of expectations and other people's achievements. I think that's, that's one, one real challenge. I think another challenge is that just the expectations themselves can be tricky. Um, I, I really enjoyed coming into the classroom when students had no idea who I was. And 
you know, now like, I'm never going to live up to what, like, at least for the ones who, you know, have consumed every word that I've published, I'm never going to live up to the vision of, like, of who you think I am, because those are, those are all snapshots of my best work. And you're going to get like, my average, not my peak. Uh, sorry. Um, and I, I hope the average goes up over time, but still there's going to be a gap between, you know, what, what the expectation was and, and what the reality was. Um, I think another, another big challenge for me over time has been, there have been, uh, there have been moments when people that I thought were my friends turned out not to be, and I, I didn't know what to do with that. And I don't know whether they were envious of the opportunities I was getting uh, or whether they'd always been just critical of my work. And, and now it became sort of fashionable to, <laughs> to, you know, to try to attack the person who's prominent. Um, but that's not fun. And yet all of these things are, they're, they're, they're small challenges to grapple with, yeah. um, I guess, compared to the, the meaningful impact that yeah. I, I think a lot of these doors have opened up. And so... I'm, I'm not going to stop walking through them, but uh, it, it definitely makes it clear that, yeah, there's, there are always, there's always a price to success. Yeah. And well, and we all know that if there's nine glowing reviews and there's one negative, we, f we focus on the, on the one negative. I appreciate you sharing that uh, with me. Are, are you able to be at peace with those situations? I think mostly. I think they, they bother me sometimes when they happen, but I tend not to dwell on things very much. Like this is the this is the blessing and the curse of being a very future oriented person. Yeah. Um, you know, whenever people say live in the moment, I'm like, eh, there are a lot of moments that I would rather not live in. And so I, I want to look at that experience and ask, all right, what am I going to do differently or better the next time to try to to avoid it? Um, and that's to me, that's where a lot of the learning happens. So um, I don't I don't find myself ruminating much. I think. You know, m most of most of those experiences are they're sort of they're like a fly that buzzes in your ear for a little while and it's a nuisance. And then at some point you either stop noticing it or it gets, you know, it gets bored and flies away. Yeah. Well, if you're ever stuck and you are ruminating, you just call me because I'll pump your tires anytime. <laughs> just just what I need. Yeah, more, you, more Jeff Ted's or just go, undeserved you, praise. You can doom scroll my Twitter. It's all it's all there. You don't you don't have to talk to me. Uh, the, Adam, the last personal question I have, and then we'll move into the three and 30. This comes from a recent episode of Tim Ferriss that I, I found really fascinating. And he had George Mumford on the podcast. And for those that don't know who George Mumford is, he is uh, like a mindfulness coach, uh, sports performance coach, and he kind of rose to, to, to fame because he worked with Michael Jordan and helped Michael Jordan get his mental game to the point where you know, Michael Jordan credits George Mumford a lot with, with the success that he had. And on this episode, George Mumford quoted Stephen Covey, the late, great Stephen Covey. And he said, to have a breakthrough, you need to have a break with, to break loose of your former identity. And to, in order to have that complete paradigm shift, to reach that, that new level of, of life experience. And I was so curious, did you have that kind of paradigm shifting moment or experience and, and kind of what's different about you now if you did versus maybe you know, 10 years ago? It's a, it's a great observation. I think it's, it's spot on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this one briefly because I just realized I'm 15 minutes late for my next meeting, um, which I'm not supposed to be having. <laughs> but I, um, I think, yeah, I think 
I think one of, one of the big moments that happened 10 years ago, actually, I got tenure and uh, one of my favorite colleagues, Barry Schwartz, reached out and asked if I wanted to write a book together. And I was over the moon excited and flattered. And I went to, to tell my undergraduates that, uh, that I was going to write this book with, with one of my intellectual role models. And they revolted. And they said, you will not write a book with someone else about somebody else's topic. You need to write a book about your own work. And that, that conversation, I, I promised them I would write my own book first. That led to deciding to go for a give and take. Um, it, you know, it led to pretty much everything else I've done in the last decade. And I think the way it changed me was I spent a lot of my career trying to, uh, trying to live up to other people's expectations. And I now spend much less time worrying about <laughs> who I'm letting down. Uh, I didn't want to let down Barry. And in this case, right, I, I had a bunch of students then that I was letting down if I said yes to Barry. Uh, and so it, it solved the problem for me. Now I am much more likely to say, I'm never going to please everyone. Let me just be clear about who I'm willing to disappoint. Yeah. Adam, thanks for answering that. Well, that brings us to the last segment. It's 3 and 30. We got a quick slide, Adam. We'll go through the 3 and 30. Then we'll get you off to your next meeting. So Adam, what are three things and, uh, that you recommend people can do to start thinking again in their own lives in the next 30 days? Okay, so the first one is to define your identity in terms of what you value, not what you believe. Uh, that means who you are is, is based on what's important to you, not what you think is true. Um, so you define yourself as somebody who seeks the truth or somebody who helps others or somebody who strives for excellence, not as a... Um, you know, Republican or Democrats, uh, not, as a, um, not as a believer or denier of climate science, not as a vaccine supporter or resistor, um, not as a Tom Brady fan uh, or a Tom Brady hater. Uh, the second is to embrace the joy of being wrong. And what I mean by that is that when you find out that you were incorrect, uh, you recognize that that is a chance to learn something. And the faster you are to recognize when you were wrong, the faster you can move toward getting it right, which last time I checked is the point. And then the third is don't agree to disagree. Uh, when somebody says, well, let's just agree to disagree. Uh, I, I, I like to tell them now, well, actually, I don't believe in that. Um, I'm open to rethinking it, like most things. But I, I think it's a sign that I've lost you at some point. And I believe I'm capable of having a thoughtful conversation with anyone about anything. And so I would love to know where I went wrong and what I could have done to, to maybe get through to you a little bit differently here. And what, what happens when I do that is in many cases, I'll learn something. And the idea of, of arguing to learn instead of arguing to win can be a game changer. Yeah. Adam, thank you uh, so much for this time today, giving generously of your time and of your insights and, and all of your knowledge and your, your enthusiasm. And, and this might really sound strange to hear. I know you're only 40 years old, but I'm absolutely convinced that one of your great legacies will be how you helped humankind grow, learn, and connect during the pandemic. You gave a voice to things that we didn't know how to label uh, you made us less alone and you demonstrated courage so that other people could fight for things that mattered to them, but they weren't, weren't really sure how to take that first step. 
Um, we've all been through a lot in this shared yet unique experience of living through this pandemic. And um, this in particular day, this will live on as a very special moment for me throughout my entire life. Um, not, uh, not many people have impacted me the way that you have. And it is such an honor uh, to spend some time with you and, and to, uh, to call you a friend. Uh, this has been an unbelievable honor. So thank you for this. Um, I'll never forget it. Well, thank you, Jeff. That's, that's overly kind of you as always, but um, <laughs> I, I, I just, I have so much admiration for, for how earnest you are, which is something that everyone who meets you uh, really comments on consistently. Um, you're obviously a huge giver. Um, you're voraciously curious and um, you really think deeply about important questions and, and bring a lot of wisdom to them. And I, I can't really think of qualities that, that I, I admire more than that. Uh, so this, uh, it's, it's, it's great to call this a friendship and um, really, really honored that you've, you've engaged so, so thoughtfully with my work and uh, I will try to live up to it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Adam, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And to everybody else in closing, that brings us to the end of season four, Hard to Believe. And uh, to stay connected with us, you can find us on all your favorite social platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And don't forget to track us down on LinkedIn and the YouTube subscriber channel and wherever your favorite podca podcasts are found. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what you saw, don't forget to share episode links with your friends and colleagues. And if you're ready to take the next step and you're part of a leadership team that you just know has untapped potential, don't wait another moment. Go to unleashresults.com, subscribe to our newsletter, and we'll take care of the rest.